Thanks for listening in today to our Sunday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we will be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. So let's join Pastor Dave now. Soon your trials will be over. Luke chapter 3. It's interesting to me that Luke um, gives this background in such detail before he starts chapter 3. Um, and I believe one of the reasons why he's doing that is because he wants to be able to show uh, the darkness on the political and religious scene um, before John the Baptist comes on the scene, because we know that light shines brightest when it's the darkest. And so here he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, so he mentions Tiberius, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, then Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. So he mentions these guys by name. And then he mentions two religious figures. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Tiberius was an emperor that was known for his cruelty and severity, Pontius Pilate was also renowned for his brutal massacre of the Jewish people in Judea. Uh, He was very insensitive towards the Jews themselves. Um, We have the rulers of the family of Herod, who is also known for their corruption and cruelty. We have Herod, we have Philip, we have Lysanias. And then, on top of that, he mentions the two religious figures here, Annas and Caiaphas. And so, Annas was the one that um, took the, uh, um, the sacrifices that people would buy in order to sacrifice the Lord during the feast time and charge exorbitant prices. He was extorting from the people, and he got wealthy that way. He got very wealthy that way. And Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And so the reason why it says the high priest in plural in the way that both of them, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not functioning as the high priest at the same time, it's kind of like the president of the United States. When they cease being president, they're still called Mr. President, okay? And so once you're a high priest, you're a high priest until you die. So at this point, Caiaphas is really in the office and function of high priest, but Annas is also a high priest, and so Caiaphas is his son-in-law. Now, this is really uh, uh, very interesting, is that uh, Josephus mentions Caiaphas, uh, but also archaeologists in 1990, you might find this fascinating, in 1990 discovered a burial cave on the outskirts of Jerusalem, which contained a collection of bone boxes. During the first century, bodies of the dead were laid in caves, and after the flesh had decomposed, the bones were gathered and put into boxes, indicating a belief in the resurrection. One of the casket-like boxes found in the cave was elaborately carved and is inscribed with the words, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And so the box contains the actual remains of the biblical figure, Caiaphas. And again, it just brings validity to the word of God. All the times, dates, places, people are mentioned are all real people. And and we see archaeology always comes alongside with what the Bible says. And so we have these guys there, and, uh, um, and, and it's It's behind that background. It's that background that is being painted there, being so dark and bleak at this time that the mentioning of John the Baptist comes to pass here. 
I want you to go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to look a little bit at this guy, John the Baptist. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is actually a combination of two scriptures of Malachi 3.1 as well as Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And it's very prophetic. John the Baptist actually preached just that, prepare the way of the Lord. But when you go back and look at Malachi uh, chapter uh, 3 here verses 1 through 5, you find out that this is actually a warning a threat to the priests of their day. In Malachi's day, the priest was failing in their duty. The, off, the offerings were blemished, and they were second best. And so they were not giving their very best. They could be sick, they, they, they could have, um, there, there could be a parasite on them, and they would still offer it to the Lord when the offering was supposed to be pure without blemish. See, this is one of the things that uh, Annas the high priest did is that when pilgrims would come, when travelers would come from far away in order to worship the Lord during the feast, he would have them inspected by their priests. And so if you brought a lamb with you, and even though it was without blemish, he would look at it, and and some of his priests would look at it and say, you know what, Uh, we, we found something wrong with it. You have to buy one of ours. You have to buy one of ours. And so the difference would be it's at a very, uh, um, it's at an extorted price. So normally you could buy a lamb, let's say, for five bucks, but once you got to Jerusalem, it was now 50 bucks. And so he would pocket the difference there. Now, most people would come without a sacrifice and buy it there on the temple grounds because if you think about it, if you're traveling 60 miles away, if you have to go up the, um, the Jericho Trail and you have a lamb uh, with you or a goat, there's a chance that it could get injured along the way. And then it would be no good for the sacrifice. And so the majority of people would come and buy their sacrifice there. Well, during Jesus' time here, or I should say John's time, he is telling the priests are failing to do their duty there as well. They're charging the people exorbitant prices. They're not giving God their very best. And so John comes on the scene to try and, again, prepare the way of the Lord. And so that's what's going on here. Mark chapter 1 verse 4, it continues says John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out for him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. I love this description of John. Now, we've already gone over the fact that he was a Nazarite. He took a Nazarite vow. He doesn't cut his hair. He drinks no wine or intoxicating drink. So he doesn't shave at all. So this guy is ZZ Top before ZZ Top. This guy has a gnarly beard. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't cut his hair. He comes on the scene with a a camel skin coat, a leather belt, And he eats honey and wild honey and and locusts. Now think about that for a moment. For those of us who know people that have 
these gnarly, burly beards, when it comes to eating things, especially honey and locusts, you know what's sticking to his beard as he shows up? Pieces of that locust are probably all in there, man. You know, he could probably just take a bowl of water and just crunch it and go, soup. Am I wrong? This guy's eating honey and locusts with this beard. Man, he is a man's man when he shows up. He comes from the wilderness. He's supposed to remind them of the prophets of old. And these aren't effeminate men. These aren't men that that grew up with a silver spoon in their mouths. They have been trained out in the wilderness to seek the Lord. And he's had the spirit of God in him since he was in the womb. So John shows up at this time. Now, there are many scholars who say that this uh, camel-haired uh, uh, robe he wore was, is very coarse hair and that he would have worn it inside out. So the hair would have been rubbing against the skin, irritating the skin. It was to remind him uh, as a prophet that he's to avoid any soft luxuries that would kill the soul. It's a reminder not to get caught up with the things of the world. It might have also been a reminder of what an irritant the people have become before God because of their disobedience. And this is John showing up. He probably has a little bit of a rash. He's chafing a little bit or whatever. And you know he's probably not in the best mood. And what is he preaching? Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is coming. Make way the way of the Lord. This is what he's preaching. This is what he is doing here. And I guarantee you, people are listening. Now I want you to go to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 19, we read this. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. John was the son of Zacharias, the priest. And in Judaism, the qualification for the priesthood was twofold. For one... He had to be from the descendant of Aaron, which he was, because Zacharias was his father who was a descendant of Aaron. And you could have no physical defect. You could not be lame, blind, deaf, anything like that. So if you did have any sort of physical defect, you were a descendant of Aaron, you still could not serve as a priest. So although John did not conform to the normal priesthood of Israel, he was still from that line of priests, and people still recognized him as a priest, even though... Uh, the priesthood recognized him as kind of being a rogue priest. And yet people were flocking to him. And they can see by his appearance, he has taken a Nazarite vow. And there's something different about John. And so representatives from the Pharisees went and they had to ask John some questions. And so they asked him, who are you? And what is meant from that is that what is your title? What is your function? What is your purpose? And so he answers them and he lets them know as he says, I am not the Christ. 
I know you're wondering if I'm one of those other false messiahs that has been showing up time after time saying, I am the one, follow me. And he lets them know right off the bat, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. They ask him, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, some people get confused because after Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and in Matthew chapter 17, Peter was asking him some questions, and one of the questions he asked him, he says, why then do scribes say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah? And Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first. That speaks of the future. Is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wish. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John just said, I'm not Elijah. Jesus inferred, well, kind of like John the Baptist, Elijah has come. So they'll look at that and say, well, isn't that a bit of a contradiction? No, because you take the whole word of God. And Zacharias, the priest, when he was there in, in the temple there, and Gabriel came to visit him and told him he was going to have a son, told him this about John. He says in Luke 1.17, he will also go before him, meaning the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's what John is doing. He is the forerunner going out in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he is not Elijah himself. And so they go on and they ask him in verse 21 of John, says, are you the prophet? And he says, no. Because it was widely believed that Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the major prophets would also come back before the Messiah. And then in verse 22 of John 1, it says, and then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said this, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's saying, you know that prophecy that Isaiah spoke? That there's going to be a forerunner? That there's going to be someone who comes before the Messiah to be that herald, to be that voice? He's saying, that's me. Which should tell you what? The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is the word. But John is the voice. He gives voice to the word. The word exists in the mind before the voice speaks. The voice articulates the word. That was the relationship between Christ and his forerunner, John the Baptist. It is true that John was the first to appear before the public eye. Yet as the word Christ, he has existed from all eternity. And the voice is simply the vehicle or instrument by which the word is expressed or made known. Here's something else about a voice. A voice is heard, not seen. That's John. That's John. John is not seeking to display himself. As a matter of fact, later on, some of John's disciples will come to him and be all aggravated over the fact that, hey, Jesus is now down by the water and his disciples are now dis- uh, uh, baptizing others and more people are flocking to him. And what did John say? John says, that's the way it has to be. I must decrease while he increases. I'm just the voice. They need to see him. They're not here to see me. I'm here to point them to that person, the person of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, Jesus tells us this about John. 
he says when he's speaking to the multitude, he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Uh Uh-uh. This is John coming on the scene, you know? John's coming on the scene. It's almost like the way he comes on the scene, you know, he's, he's sweating, he's coming from the desert. He's eating the, the, you know, the, uh, the locusts and the wild honey and all that kind of stuff. He's probably, not, he's probably smelling like a man is what he's doing. It's almost like the Lord says, man, we got to get this boy in some water. I know baptism. <laughs> we'll give him a ministry of baptism. That should clean him up, you know. And so he tells him, he says, what did you go out to see? Is this guy some, you know, uh, uh, some uh, guy that, that, uh, that has been uh, spoiled his whole life? Absolutely not. You're not going out to see him in soft garments, wear soft clothing. That's, those are people in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist. How awesome is that? And yet, no prophet greater than John the Baptist that was born of a woman? Then, wow, when I look at Abraham, when I look at Moses, when I look at Elijah or Elisha, Wow, there's no one greater than him when I look at Daniel. And you know what's interesting to me? John never did one miracle. Never did one miracle. And yet, according to Jesus, he was the greatest prophet born of a woman. Why? I would submit to you it's because of this. He only preached on one thing, the person of Jesus Christ. His whole focus when he opened his mouth was to bring people to the person of Jesus Christ. His complete focus is to let them know, I'm just a herald. There's someone coming after me. That's who you need to focus on. Not me, but on the person who's coming after me. And because his single focus was on the person of Jesus Christ, I believe that's why he was the greatest prophet. John is what every true minister of God is supposed to be. A voice. A voice. You're not to look to me. You're to look towards the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's about him. I have the message, but he is what the message is about. And so our eyes are upon him. Every minister should know their voice. And to keep them humble, they need to understand God has used many voices throughout the ages, even the voice of a donkey. I'm on that same level. God constantly reminds me, you know I can take you out at any time, right? I do know that. I do know that. And I can replace you? Yep, I know that. But forever long that you, you use me, I hope to just be that vehicle, that instrument, that voice that points people to you, not to me. Because this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the king, the true king. And so John was the voice, the herald, the forerunner. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the king. The word needs a voice. The king needs a herald. A voice has no value without the word, and the herald has no value without a king. And so it's a privilege to be the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a voice and a herald, but he is our king. 
It's the person of Jesus Christ. And so in John chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, the anointed one, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? One thing that um, we need to understand is he goes on and he says, John answers, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands among you um, one whom you do not know. He says, I baptize with water. One of the things that we need to understand as Christians is that baptism didn't begin with us. We're not the one that invented baptism. Baptism has been around for a long, long time. The Jews have been baptizing people for thousands of years, okay? And so this, this understanding of baptism is a Hebraic understanding, and it speaks of identification. Baptism has everything to do with identification, and so when one was baptized, he identified himself with the person that brought that message, is what happens there. In Judaism, when a Gentile underwent the process of conversion to Judaism, he would also be baptized, and by so doing, would identify himself with Judaism and the Jewish people. Of that old life that I had as a Gentile goes down and is buried, and now I am now in, in agreement with this, with this newfound faith of Judaism. And it's the same thing today. Baptism all speaks of identification. When John was baptizing, what he was doing is that he was proclaiming his was a baptism of repentance. And the message he was proclaiming was talking about the coming of the Messiah. And he's saying, you're not right with God. Your passion is no longer there with God. And you need to repent Because you know that you're not ready to meet God yet. And that your life is not what it's supposed to be in your relationship with God. And because of that, you need to repent. You're not ready to meet God yet. And they're saying, you're right. I have lost my focus. I have lost my passion. All these sacrifices I'm doing, and every time I go to synagogue, all I'm doing is going through the motions. Because this is what a good Jew is supposed to do. But there is no love relationship there. My heart is not right. So because of that, they hear John's words and they're going, he's right, he's right. And John tells them, and I'm the forerunner. The Messiah is coming. You want to be ready. And so they were flocking to him and he was baptizing them because they were receiving that message and they were identifying with what John was saying, that they're a sinner, that they aren't in right relationship with God. And they believed him when he said, and the Messiah is coming. And, the Messiah, and, and you know what? Baptism is the same today. We identify with what Jesus did for us on the cross. We identify and we are in agreement with what he did on the cross. And on the cross, he said, you're a sinner. You need saving. I'm the Savior. I'm going to die for you and pay the penalty for you so you may have life. And I look at that and I go, I agree. I'm a sinner. I need saving. You're the Savior, and you paid the penalty for me on the cross. And so when I get baptized, I'm identifying with Jesus' message. I'm identifying with what his life says. And so I, just like Jesus was brought down into the grave and rose again three days later, I also identify with him with going under the water and then coming up with him in newness of life. And so that is what baptism, for the most part, is all about. And you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. You have to be baptized in order to be in obedience with Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that. And we're going to have a baptism here 
probably the next uh, probably three months or so, and it'll be on a Wednesday night here on uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And so, if you have not been baptized, I really encourage you to do so. All right. That completes the Sunday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Join us next Sunday as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at the 5 p.m. service on Saturday. On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our young adults ministry, Arise, meets every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at the church. Child care is offered for all of our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell Gas Station, right across from Starbucks. For more information about us on this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. We are so blessed you've joined us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. Mm -hmm.